Now, in the previous five episodes of our podcast, we've spotlighted songwriters who've had most of their success behind the scenes writing for others. And while the intent is still to focus on those mostly unsung heroes so you can get to know them better, we'd be doing a disservice if we didn't take the chance from time to time to speak with artists who make their living as singer-songwriters. Country music, of course, has a long history of those, starting with Hank Sr., running down through the generations with people like Johnny Cash, Loretta Lynn, Dolly Parton, Alan Jackson, Clint Black, Mary Chapin Carpenter, Brad Paisley, Eric Turner. The list goes on and on and on. And there's an exciting new crop of singer-songwriters, too. Luke Combs, Casey Musgraves, and our guest this month. I'm Tom Maley, and this is Write You a Song. Ashley McBride is a 36-year-old from Mammoth Springs, Arkansas, moved to Nashville in 2007, won the prestigious Country Showdown talent show twice in 2009 and 2010. But even with that, it still took her another six years to release her first real recording, an EP called Jalopies and Expensive Guitars. That led to her first full-length album, Girl Going Nowhere, which was released last year to much critical acclaim and was nominated for a Grammy in the Country Album of the Year category. It also garnered Ashley a couple of nominations in the the upcoming Academy of Country Music Awards. McBride co-wrote all 11 songs on the album, which addresses themes of everything from the rewards of believing in yourself to the opioid epidemic to where musicians go when they die. It's a wildly imaginative album with writing that, at its best, has an almost literary short story feel to it. Oh, and it rocks. Ashlyn McBride, thank you for joining us on uh, Write You a Song. And I was trying to come up with some adjectives to describe your songwriting. Um, and, and words like raw and authentic are definitely in there. But then I landed on the word fearless. And I think that describes your music and your songwriting, at least so far in your career, absolutely perfectly to me. Do you think you're fearless? Um, I've never been called fearless before, but I would, I would put that sort of with um with authentic then because we really do there are a couple co-writers that i write with where we don't even write anything down until one of us cries (laughs) so you know when you've hit a nerve um we just did that this last week as a matter of fact um but yeah no we 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 try to dive in and not necessarily always dive deep but try to find things that that need to be talked about and that are that are important to us and has that kind of been the way you are from early on or, or when you first went to Nashville or considered a, a, a career in music seriously, did you try to kind of tamp down that, uh, that, that fearlessness, that authenticity, or have you just always been kind of full bore ahead? I've always written that way, but when I got to town and I was trying to get a publishing deal and all that, um, they, they kind of do steer you in a direction and you need to be writing more like this and you need to be writing for this and that. And I, I did it. And, it, you know, they weren't all terrible songs or anything, but it just you can tell when it comes from, from that kind of place and when it comes from a real place. And I just don't really care for how it sounds when it comes out of me from, from anything that's ingenuine. So uh, I was given permission by uh, a mentor songwriter. One of the reasons I moved to town was to write with Lisa Carver. And after writing with her a few times and told her I was going to, try to get some meetings, get a publishing deal. And she said, it will break my heart if you write yourself out of your own brilliance. So make sure you keep it tight. Um, so even though I did have to write, you know, a few things that I wasn't necessarily excited about, uh, we managed to keep it the way it should be. When you first got to town, did you uh, arrive primarily to be a songwriter or to be a singer or to be both? I was already playing in bars. I'd been playing in bars since I was probably 19 or 20. 
and I moved to town when I was 23, I think. Um, and my, yeah, my main goal was to be a songwriter. Even though I love performing, I love doing all that. I thought your chances are probably better uh, to be a songwriter. I'm recalling a story that uh, you actually told somebody that you admired who was, a, I think, a songwriter, uh, that, that you were kind of leaning towards singing and songwriting, and, and they kind of discouraged you? Yeah, I mean, everybody's got their, um, everybody's got their naysayers uh, everywhere you turn. And not everybody, you know, when I said, I, I think we're going to do an EP first and, and see if we can make a little, a little dust fly up and see if we can get a little attention. Not everybody was super excited about it, no. Why do you think? Why, why is that? Is that just the way Nashville kind of is nowadays? It, it's more about the singers are here, the songwriters are here, and the two shouldn't cross-pollinate, or what? Um, I don't, my favorite singers are songwriters. Uh, so I'm not sure that, that they shouldn't cross-pollinate, but we've lost, in the last uh, eight or ten years, we've lost 80% of the professional songwriters in Nashville. Wow. Because it's so hard to get a song cut if you don't write it with the artist. Um and that's, that's heartbreaking, really heartbreaking. And sometimes when people aren't happy for you because you're doing what they call the artist thing, you're doing the artist thing, and if they're not happy for you, they may be because they wanted to do that and weren't able to, or maybe because they're trying to look out for you because it is a brutal uh, job to take. Okay, so it maybe wasn't necessarily a deliberate slight. It could have been they were they they, they had your back a little bit, or or they knew the the challenges that were ahead. Because a lot of songwriters did try and make it as a singer first, and they fell back on it. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And some some go the other way. Some start out as songwriters and go ahead and grow into their their artist thing, and and some artists go, you know what? I like it better. I like it better as a songwriter. That statistic you mentioned, that the 80% of Nashville songwriters that have just kind of gone away, a lot of that, and I've talked to uh, some of the other songwriters on this podcast uh, kind of about this and, and, and touched upon it, but that's because we don't do traditional CDs really anymore. I mean, we do, but we don't. And in the old days, if somebody had a, a cut on a CD that never was released to radio, they could still make money because the CD was still selling. They get a cut of that. But with streaming nowadays and, and digital, it, that doesn't happen anymore. The pay, the way things get paid out is, is a little different because if you're a songwriter on a song that's streaming, you are getting paid on that. Um, it is fractions, fractions uh, compared to what you get paid or used to get paid for a radio spin. And what you get paid when a unit sells, you know, like an album, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's really different than that. But it, it does still happen. And um, the, the thing now is the artists, a, a lot of the producers want to write the albums with the artist, which if your producer is a songwriter, I understand that. And if it's what works for you, then it's what works for you. Um, for us, we really like to throw the net out and interact with each other. The, the songwriters I've, I've been writing with since I first moved to town are still the ones I write with today. And we like to throw our net out and write, not release to anything or specifically in one direction, but we write as much as we can and then look at what's in the net and see what, you know, raises its hand. When did you first kind of realize that maybe you had a gift for this songwriting thing? I was pretty young. I told my mom I was going to write songs in Nashville when I was five, and I would make stuff up all day long. And I'm sure I just, I'm sure I was a delight, you know, just driving her crazy. <laughs> uh-huh. Singing everything I did, I would. If I walked to the mailbox as a child, I would sing to her about it. Um, 
and I sang my math homework when I was a kid. That was the only way to get me to memorize times tables was to sit me down at a table and tell me I could sing it if I wanted to. No way. Man, it drove my brother crazy. He used to throw books and shoes and stuff at me because I <laughs> sang my math homework. God, that's a great technique, though. What, that, what was that uh, that old thing they used to sell on the radio? You're hooked on phonics. It was kind of like hooked, hooked on phonics only with math. Yeah, anything. If you've got a, a creative person, a musical person, anything that you can create into a melody or a rhythm, it, for me, it, it just sinks in better. And you got started in music at a very early age. Uh, you, you started by playing mandolin, and, and in various songs, you reference like your dad's guitar and his, his love of uh, of Towns Van Zant, for example, riding around on that tractor. I love that imagery. Do you come from then a musical family, or were they were your mom and dad and your 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 relatives just like just into music? Did they play music, or were they into music? Um, my I grew up going, going to a lot of bluegrass festivals with my mom. So it was really easy for me to get in jam sessions, even as a four- and five-year-old, to just sit down and watch the guys. You're watching the masters of their instrument play, and you have the opportunity to learn from them in real time. So that's a really special thing, a really special culture that I hope never goes away. Um, My dad played guitar when I was growing up. Not a whole lot because he was gone a lot and he worked a lot. But I can remember him singing Amanda to me and some, some Johnny Cash stuff he used to sing to me. My mother sings like an angel, and everyone in my family can sing, but I'm the only one who's still doing it. <laughs> we never had a family band or anything. Okay. Uh, my brother, one of my brothers, uh, did have the ability to play guitar, but he just the older he got, the less he played. And the older you got, the more you realized that music was what you wanted to do, or was that something that kind of dawned on you later in life? When when did like it click that hey, wait a minute, I could. I could do this possibly for a living. Um, when I moved from mandolin to guitar, I was nine. And I'd been trying to play guitar before that. My body really wasn't big enough to, to do it. But my parents got me a three-quarter size guitar. And I don't think I've been bored ever since. I, I could feel it. It's one of those that shift in your universe with my dad. animated this guitar in a music shop in Sayre, Missouri. And I went off, you know, and, and sat on a bench and played it. And he said, okay, it's time to go. And I handed him back the guitar, and he said, nope, that's yours. Take it home. I had paid my dues to earn my own guitar at that point. Mm. And I knew, uh, I think three days later, I, I came downstairs crying to my mother because I couldn't play and sing at the same time yet. And she was like, well, give it a week, you know. <laughs> try, try not to be too hard on yourself after three days. And I would go on to learn to play, you know, upright bass and all that. But playing guitar and making stuff up has always been my thing. And so whether I was doing it professionally or not, I, I would still be doing it. I'll, hopefully, you know, Lord willing, I'll be 93 years old and still playing guitar, making stuff up. Your dad factors into uh, a, a couple of your, your songs, The Jacket and Bible in a 44. And Bible in a 44 especially, there's that poignant line where you talk about him giving you his guitar. Is that is that true? Is that from real life? Yeah. Um, one of the things that I got in trouble for when I was just a little tyke playing mandolin was my dad had this guitar that I was fascinated with. The Martin D 35 S It was built in 1984 and I would go into his closet and I would get it out of the case and stand it up and try to play it like a bass But I was playing it like a guitar, but I was, you know, um, using the style of, of playing a bass and he was worried that I was going to break it. They, don't, they didn't make very many of that guitar. And I think the next time I picked it up, I was probably seven years old. I picked it up, and my foot, I stepped into the guitar case, 
and those Martin cases are, are real slick plastic. And it was on a tile floor, and I fell. But being a good child, I fell sacrificing my body for the guitar. <laughs> and he told me to never touch that guitar again, and I didn't. Not until his 70th birthday, and I went to his house and got that guitar out and started writing Bible in a 44 about him. And after it was written, it was written for a very specific purpose. I knew that someday I would need a song like that. And I will have wished that I had written it earlier so I could keep my wits about me. And my dad is, um, he's still with us. He's terminally ill, but he's, he's a tough old coon hound. Um, I played the song for him. And I went and got in my truck as I was leaving to go back to Tennessee. And he brought that guitar case out and he put it in my driver's seat. And he buckled it in and he patted it on the top and he said, bye, friend. And I said, Dad, I can't have that until you're gone. And he said, I can't watch you play it when I'm gone and I'd like to see you play it. Of course, I just bawled like a little baby. He had a southern roll like a red bone hound. Every song he sang was my favorite sound He'd be the last one off if a ship went down The kind of man who feels good to be around The kind of man who feels good to be around I'm bawling like a little baby right now. Oh my gosh, what a story. Do you still play that guitar regularly, or is that for special occasions only? I just wrote on it um, this last week. It's still never been set up <laughs> the way other guitars have been set up because I'm terrified to even let a luthier play it. So sometimes the intonation can be a little squirrely. But um, it's, it's got a really wide neck. It's got that classical style headstock. And it sounds as big as a house, and it smells like a library book. I love that guitar. You see through a light like an old screen door He taught me how to hunt and how to love the Lord Carried a Bible and a 44 And they just don't make them like that no more You are so descriptive just in conversation. No wonder you're a songwriter. My God. Um, <laughs> one of the songs that really underscores uh, that word that I brought up earlier, fearlessness, is uh, Living Next to Leroy. And it's got a line... On the dark side of the country, it ain't bonfires, it ain't beer. Was that written as a rebuttal to kind of the idealized country music version of Small Town Life that that we hear now on the radio? And did you have any reservations about about putting that song out there? Because, I mean, it is darkly and starkly real. That's genuine rural America for a lot of people. Yeah, and we're lucky in country music. We do have the opportunity to spend time talking about bonfires and beer and trucks and everything wonderful. But that's not the only thing that exists. And out where I grew up, there was a, you know, a really bad meth crisis where there's, there's not a lot to do out there and people can slip into that pretty easily. My co-writer on that song is Nicolette Hayford and Leroy was her neighbor. He lived three trailers down from her in Stark, Florida. And he was a nice guy. He really did teach her how to roll cigarettes. I used to roll my cigarettes on the hood of my Tacoma Sit and watch the world go by I was 17 and green and knowing nothing about living In a town where people go to die and 
regular person that happened to have a really awful substance that he was chained to. And I didn't have any reservations about putting that out there because if, if nobody else is going to do it, then we have to. Um, the less you talk about things like that, the, the bigger that danger is. And at least we didn't glorify him. You know, we didn't try to superheroize him or anything. But we also didn't demonize him because he wasn't. He wasn't a, a piece of crap or anything. He just happened to have a really bad addiction. Find out quick how high you get when that last hit gets you, boy. some of your songwriting influences who do who do you admire and, and did you try to model yourself after anybody when you were first starting out or maybe maybe you still do well um, i've always sounded really bluegrassy my whole life because it was just in my blood but there was a tendency i had that i could hear in myself that i didn't really know what to do with the older i got the, the more it stuck its head up and the more i could hear it but i still didn't know what to do with it really um, until i moved to memphis and then playing in the bars there, rock and roll was was born there. And you can feel it, and you can smell it in the air, and it is a dirty, nasty, beautiful city. I'm actually on my way to Memphis right now. Um, and the other bands and just the, the whole scene there, it, being that close to the Mississippi River kind of gets under your fingernails and into your bones, and, and then it comes out your throat. And I, re- I realized that what was in there was blues and rock and roll, and I didn't know how to tap into it. So I just I stopped fighting it and just kind of let it show itself. Um, Songwriting-wise, I love uh, Patty Griffin, Guy Clark, John Prine, probably my favorite songwriter of all time, Mr. Prine. Um, Chris Christopherson was a big deal when I was growing up. My dad really liked things like the Silver Tongue Devil and To Beat the Devil, Sunday Morning Coming Down, and those songs were so unapologetically written. Um, I think that had a lot to do with it. What are the challenges of being a singer-songwriter and on top of that, a woman uh, in Nashville and in country music right now? Um, I think being a singer-songwriter right now, I would say you have a leg up, because if you're singing your stuff and you're writing your stuff, then you becoming an artist 
uh, is not a far stretch at all. I think our beautiful city is full of singers. Uh, so it's really easy to find a singer. Um, it's not really easy to turn a singer into an artist. It's not easy to teach someone who's never written a song to write their own stuff. So, of course, you have to have songwriters. I think singers songwriters have the best of both worlds. And if I heard you right, the second part of that was about men and women not getting equal play on the radio. I, I'm not, I don't understand it yet. And it's not just on radio. It's at festivals and stuff, too. I mean, there were several festivals we played this last year in 2018 where there was one female on the bill. And it's a three-day festival. Mm-hmm. And I remember one, there, was, there were only two women on the bill. It was me and Lindsay L. And that's music all day and all night. So it's not that there aren't women out there writing good songs and performing it well, because there are. It's not that women aren't selling out shows. They definitely are. So I really don't know why the whole, there doesn't have to be such a divide between men and women. I really don't think there has to be. I think country music is a really big place. It's a giant table. We should pull up some more chairs. And I, the, all I know now that I know how radio works and um, how hard their job is as programmers, where they can't play it, even if they love my record and they can't play it, I understand that. But then there's also the other side of that, where they just don't want to play my damn songs, and that's okay. Um, the, the least attractive thing I could ever do about it is be butthurt about it. So I've decided not to be butthurt about it, and I won't accept it because it's unacceptable behavior, but... Um, you can walk alongside it and figure out how to be a companion to it because resisting it's only going to make the problem worse. So if you can just keep putting honey on it, putting honey on it, putting honey on it, pretty soon a fly's going to land there. But it's also fuel, isn't it? It kind of fires you up. Oh, absolutely. And it's it's fuel for our fans, which is has been really interesting to watch too. And I do think it, I think it makes a little bit of a difference. Well, personally, I think the conversation needs to be kept going for those exact reasons. Eventually, the people who can, you know, change this will maybe finally clue in a little bit. You know what I mean? It, it, it's it's frustrating for me, a music lover, and I've been in country radio for over 30 years. And I've seen periods in, in country radio where women have done great late 90s. Oh, my God. You had you mentioned Patty Loveless earlier and Pam Tillis and Shania and Mary Chapin Carpenter. And it goes on and on. And... I don't understand the disparity of it. It just it kind of blows my mind a little bit. Yeah, it is. It is really a strange feeling um, to be in this situation because for every female we had in the late '90s, there is a girl in her footsteps now. Um, it's just a little harder to find them. Um, I do want to, but we got just a few minutes left with you, and and I can't thank you enough for taking the time that you have already. But I want to talk to you a little bit about just some really th- things that had to be just mind blowing for you. Uh, one being invited up on stage by by Eric Church before I, was this before you even had a record deal, or you just gotten one way before I had a record deal? <laughs> Tell us this, this is such a great story. Um, yeah, so Eric and I share a manager now, and um, Eric asks would I like to come to Chicago and watch the Holding My Own tour? Oh, man, of course I would. I would. I'm interested in the lights and the production and how all this works. And I go, and we're at this little catering area having a bite to eat, and his assistant came over and said, Eric wants you to sing with him tonight. And I thought, okay. Well, I've never sung in an arena before, but I'm sure it'll be fine. I know all of Eric's songs. And my manager's standing there, and he said, no, he wants to do Bible on a 44. 
And my immediate thought was, watch me forget the words for that. <laughs> Something I made up. And, I, you know, I've never used in-ear monitors. I don't have a guitar with me. And they were like, it's fine. We're going to take you out to the arena right now. Put your little ear monitors in. Introduce you to the sound crew. Let you kind of get comfortable on an empty stage, empty arena. Here's Eric's guitar. And uh, you can see it on the video on YouTube that it's uh, identical guitars. Um, and it was sweet of him to let me do that because I don't do well without a guitar in my hand. I'm learning how to do that. But I, I got up there and, and he was he said such kind things. And he said that phrase that has stuck now. And, and I get called that all the time. But it, he said, you know, she's a whiskey drinking badass. <laughs> so I mentioned, uh, I mentioned I had a guest. And there's a, uh, there's a young lady here who um, I have become a massive fan of and you guys are going to be a massive fan of her real soon uh she's uh just starting this journey um of a career and she's unquestionably my my favorite artist out right now that's not out yet but she will be soon so i invited her to come out and just her and i are going to do an acoustic uh song that she wrote and uh she is uh She's a whiskey-drinking badass. That's what she is. But, uh. <laughs> I, I, you know, people make T-shirts and bring them to me that say that on there. Um, it was really, really something for for me to play the opening lick to a song that I wrote and to have that very first reaction from the crowd be so positive so quickly and so loud. I mean, it's like a real-life version of uh, Star is Born except without the torrid romance. Oh, yeah, yeah. In fact, we had never even uh, shaken hands before that night. And, and what about uh, when you found out that Garth had covered Girl Going Nowhere in concert? It was like 2.30 in the morning when I found out about that. My phone blew up, and I was a little bit like annoyed, you know, that my phone was going off at 2.30 in the morning. But I look, and it's a video from Tacoma, Washington, Garth doing Girl Going Nowhere. Of course, he kills it. He makes it his own and does such a good job of it. Um I waited until like six or seven to call my mom. Not everyone needs to get up at two thirty in the morning about it, but yeah, it's been incredible. It's been incredible hearing from him from time to time and getting to see him from time to time, and uh, for him to go, "Oh, hi, Ashley, how are you?" is uh, is a wild thing. I got, I got something new that I'll play that's kind of in that vein. Do you mind? Now there's all kinds of new good stuff in Nashville. Look up a young lady by the name of Ashley McBride. This little girl's a great little writer. She wrote this song uh, called uh, A Girl Going Nowhere. We're going to change it to a boy, but if I do girl going somewhere in the middle, it's a tribute to her because I'm not going to do this half as good as she does. Don't waste your life behind that. But you won't get far Cause you ain't the first Boy, you won't be the last You can tell us all about it You come crawling back Cause that road you're on It just winds and winds Spinning your wheels Wasting Then the lights come up And I hear the band And where they said I'd never be Is right here where I am no. I see the crowd I look around I can't find an empty 
And, and that song is so relatable. Obviously, Garth relates to it uh, on one level. I have a 26-year-old daughter who's trying to make it in, in, in L.A., and I sent her that song because it's it's such a powerful message about you don't listen to the naysayers and, and just believe in yourself. For what kind of re- response have, have you gotten from it? The responses have been, that, that song's gotten the strongest response out of anything on this record. And it has ranged from a little girl in Topeka, Kansas. I was opening for Willie Nelson at a theater, and she came up in her little braids and her bandana and said, I want to be a girl going nowhere. And that was huge. I was playing out in California, and this lady did not have meet and greets or anything. But after my set, I was walking past you know, the event, and she said, hey, can you come here and talk to me? Of course I can. So I went over there, and she said, I went through a, a rehab program last month. And I listened to your record the whole time I was in there. And I thought, wow, that's, that's huge. I'm glad that, that my record could support you through that time. And she said, I got my kids back. And that makes my knees wobble. The songs we write aren't, aren't ours. We don't make them up. That message chooses you to come out. And I'm really, really thankful that Girl Going Nowhere was, was one that chose us. Well, I need to thank my daddy for that first set of strings. And all those folks who swore I'd never be anything It took a whole lot of yes I wills And I don't care A whole lot of basement dives and county fairs To this show right now And y'all show look good out there Not bad for a girl going nowhere I want to just read a, uh, just a few lines from some of your songs that have that, that really have stuck out to me when I'm listening to your music. Just I, I just think these are great lines. The devil can't do much evil if he's too damn drunk to stand. And that's from the, the song <laughs> off your EP, Redemption. Give me your thoughts after each one of these lines that I give you. That, um, I specifically, I wrote that song with um, Randall Clay, and I specifically remember writing that because it was a thing that I would say about myself. If somebody said, you know, uh, you had enough to drink? And I go, oh, yeah, 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 just keep your demons drunk. They can't cause any trouble. You can't do much evil. It's too damn drunk to stand, right? Uh, yeah. Uh, so it was kind of a running joke, but it wound up in that song, yeah. I never wrecked a home, but don't put it past me. Yeah, tired of being happy. Wrote that with Randall Clay and Blue Foley in a hotel in Bardstown, Kentucky. Any truth and, to that song? Yeah, yeah. And actually, it was a friend of mine that was at a dinner, and the fella next to her made a couple of comments and she said, I'm happily married. And he said, uh, well, you ever get tired of being happy? Give me a call. <laughs> so we started talking about this. And a lot of times when you hear, um, you know, songs that are, we broke up and we saw each other in a supermarket and it was, and all of a sudden all those old feelings came back and all, some of those, those worked, but I've never heard one like this to where you are in the grocery store and you're looking at a cantaloupe or something and they walk up, and instead of being awkward or, gosh, I miss you, you just kind of call their bluff. But nobody knows it better than me, dude. Give me a call. <laughs> you know you want to. I think it's a ballsy thing to do, and it's something that happens every single day. And it hasn't been talked about yet. And, and what I think is just a fantastic opening line to a song, you drink my whiskey without asking. My roommate um, and my lead guitar player for almost a decade, his name was Andrew Sovine. We lived in this tiny little 
one and a half bedroom house. I lived in the attic. Uh, we called it a bedroom. And on Monday nights, we would go to Dan McGinnis. They had a writer's night that I played. Then we would come home and have a little nightcap, usually moonshine. Um, and I had this, I had this little shelf cause we didn't have much money, but I had this little shelf in our kitchen where I would keep bourbon. And one Monday he said he wasn't coming home and I got kind of oh, fine. I'll have a nightcap on my own. And I went to pour a glass of Elijah Craig and there wasn't as much in it as when I had left the week prior out on my <laughs> bar scene. You know, I had a, a route that I would play and I thought, golly, he's been drinking my whiskey when I'm gone. And then I looked at what a mess my kitchen was and what a mess my living room was and what a mess my life was since the second he moved in. And I just started singing. I still have that crappy kitchen table that's still in my kitchen in this house uh, because it's magical. I think I paid $90 for it at one of those stores you shop in, but you know they stole it out of the back of a semi at some point, so they just sell it for 90 bucks. Right. Still the same kitchen table. I sat down right there and said, you drink my whiskey without asking. And of all things, put your boots on my couch. It's not a nice couch, but it's my couch. Uh, yeah, so that, that was just true. I was just mad at Andrew. Drink my whiskey without asking. Put your boots up on my couch. It drives me crazy to remind you more than once. Take the garbage out. Use my good towels on the dog. And what kind of fever dream produced Southern Babylon? Southern Babylon is what happens when you and your friend talk conspiracy theory for like two and a half hours and then decide to write a song. <laughs> we, were, we were talking about all kinds of crazy stuff and we kind of landed on where do you think musicians go when they die? Because if there's a heaven and a hell or if there's a purgatory, like, what would that look like? And we thought, well, it would probably be a bar, and you would either be really happy to be playing this bar for the rest of your life, or, you know, forced to, to stand on that stage and kind of like a, uh, a Christmas, uh, what is that, Ebenezer Scrooge type of thing, you know? Mm-hmm. This, is, this is what could happen to you. And uh, we actually wrote it as an up-tempo rock song, the guitars, but when we went to record it, it just didn't cut across the way we wanted to. The lyrics didn't translate the way we wanted it to. My drummer, Quinn Hill, suggested maybe maybe the bar maybe southern babylon isn't a rock bar maybe it's a cocktail lounge and we should play it like that which is the advice and jay joyce loved it and we kept it that way staring through a spider well where the windshield used to be what's left of the dashboard the smell of gasoline i could just make out one neon light south off through the trees my feet took on for walking, for my mind caught up with me. When I walked in, my tab was already open. My drink was poured, my cigarette was smoking. And somebody said, hey girl, where you been? Don't you know I've been waiting for you? I've got a band up there, been down to play. A little devil went down to Georgia. The rest that traveling so looks like the road was long. Welcome to Southern Babylon. 
God, that's amazing. That's a great story. Well, <laughs> we're going to wrap things up. Uh, by the time this airs, the Grammys will have already aired. So that's why I haven't really brought up the uh, the Grammy nomination for Country Album of the Year. But let me say congratulations on winning. Uh, it's, I think that's fantastic. Thank you. <laughs> Honestly, if there's any justice, you will win. And are you working on new stuff uh, all the time? Yeah, we took most of January to write some more for the new record, and we'll start cutting songs in May. And and one final question. Uh, does the subject of Fat and Famous know that she's the subject of Fat and Famous? Uh, all four of them do. All four of them? <laughs> you got fat, I got famous. Ain't that funny how it changes? You made fun of me for years. I get paid to play my songs out. Thank you, Ashley McBride, for being fearless and for taking time to talk with us today on uh, Write You a Song. You're awesome. Just keep it up. Thank you so much for taking time with me today. Write You a Song is a production of Bonneville Communications International and KNCI Radio in Sacramento. Special thank you to Rafael LeBron and Warner Nashville for helping arrange this month's interview. And a reminder, if you like this podcast, subscribe and share it with your friends, please. And as good as this month's guest was, I cannot wait to speak with next month's guest, who's written or helped write songs like these. Songwriter Liz Rose, our guest next month on Write You a Song.